0: Welcome to Collier's Talks, a podcast series featuring the latest trends, insights, research and developments in commercial real estate in Canada and beyond.
1: Welcome to Collier's Talks. I am Carl Zeni, Associate Vice President at Collier's Ottawa Office. I am thrilled to host this episode alongside my Managing Director, Warren Wilkinson. Warren, how are you today? I'm wonderful, Carl. Thanks very much. And thanks for having me. Thank you. Warren, hosting this episode today is uh, especially exciting for me because of the guests that we have here. That is because prior to coming to Ottawa in April 2021, I lived for three years in Winnipeg, where I met and have done business with Ironclad Developments. For a little context, Ironclad was founded in Winnipeg in 2014, and it's known for its six-story apartment buildings with innovative design and for its predilection for growing secondary markets. Joining us today are Craig Gilpin, Ironclad CEO and the Director of Development, David Marsh. Greg, David, why don't you introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your journey in multifamily development? Sure. Thank you
2: very much, Carl. So I've been CEO at Ironclad Developments for a little bit over a year now. I joined the company a little over two years ago. and Prior to that, I was a, a retail executive for over 30 years. Uh, so certainly uh, very familiar with the, the building industry, although on a, on a retail perspective. And for the last two years, it's been a, an amazing journey watching and participating in the growth of a multifamily developer, uh, namely Ironclad Developments, <clears throat> and watch and, and help it grow uh, to a, a significant developer uh, across Canada.
1: Fantastic. David, what about you?
0: Myself, I'm a registered professional planner with about 24, 25 years' experience. I I think I stopped counting around that time frame. Uh, And my journey to Ironclad, uh, like uh, Craig's, was uh, coming from a different angle. Uh, I've been lucky to practice both for municipalities as a municipal planner and then with consultants. But throughout my career, I've always worked closely with developers uh, and I've always uh, looked at it from how does a developer look at processes? How does a developer look at land? Uh, While I was in consulting, I actually had the opportunity to work for Ironclad as a client Uh, doing a a variety of development approvals and and traffic studies and so forth. Uh, And during that work with Ironclad, uh, there became an opportunity to uh, move from working with a developer to being a developer. And I've been with Ironclad now for two and a half years.
1: Wonderful. Uh, That probably is quite the experience. And very nice that you were able to change sides and experiment from the inside, I guess.
0: Yes, I mean, I've been lucky throughout my career. I've always tried to look at things from how the other half lives. Uh, I think if you're a municipal planner looking and trying to understand the developer's world, that makes you a better planner and better able to forward your community's vision. And conversely, as a developer, if you're able to understand uh, where the municipality is coming from and what they're trying to achieve and anticipating their needs, that makes it a much more uh, effective process for both parties.
1: That's totally true. Now, Craig, before we jump to talk about the market, uh, Ironclad is quite well-known in Western Canada, but if someone asked you who is Ironclad, how would you answer that? Uh,
2: Who is Ironclad? Ironclad is a a cradle-to-grave developer uh, that is a builder of principally apartments, uh, but with a luxury tilt. Uh, We have amenity-rich buildings uh, and we're, we're a premium market uh, developer. But I, I think more importantly, you know, certainly anyone that can see a picture of one of our buildings can immediately see the quality and the aesthetics of the buildings that we build, and and we are a unique builder. But I think what, what people may not realize immediately, although certainly anyone familiar with Ironclad would know this pretty quickly, is that we are a a company that is built with strong relationships with the people who we work with day in, day out on our sites, but also strong relationship with our employees. So we we are truly a people-first organization. Um, And I think that's as important, if not more important uh, than the products that we're building every day, because it's really the strength of the people who who work with us directly uh, that really see our our buildings uh, go up as quickly as they do, the quality that they do, and the pride that everyone takes in, in that finished
1: product. That's uh, absolutely true. And I would say that another benchmark of Ironclad is the impressive growth that you experienced lately. Uh, I mean, it's just fantastic. If you look, you are building and you have product like concluded from uh, BC to Ontario. And like, I am curious to know how you achieve this impressive growth. Lately, and what it means for the company from the business side and the development side, like what are like the the pain growth that you experienced, and uh, uh, like what it means for the operations.
2: I'll talk about the the company, and then I'll I'll pass it on to David to talk uh, about development specifically. But obviously, we're growing as a company. In order to, we now have a number of builds in Western Canada, in in BC, uh, in Manitoba, and in Ontario. For us to grow as quickly as we have, uh, we've certainly had to make sure that we're adding staff and resources based on the future growth that we're planning. So managers like David, like myself, every day it's about what resourcing are you going to require to keep up to our future plans and then it's also very importantly about how we hire those new employees Uh, i spoke moments ago about uh, sort of the culture of ironclad being a a relationship business a collaborative and teams oriented business so we very carefully add staff to make sure that the culture of ironclad uh is maintained and sustained uh we're close to 400 employees now we've probably broken 400 uh, recently so it's incredibly important that as we add people to ironclad they're like-minded and so that we're maintaining the culture certainly in the covid environment uh, that has been much more difficult for us to get out and, and be involved in the communities uh, and uh, support charities which are important to us. Uh, but we, we've really grown uh, substantially. I, I, I think also it, our owner, Ryan Van Dam, uh, is intimately uh, knowledgeable and involved. Uh, And even as we grow and and we add more and more executives to the to the uh, to the group of companies, uh, we have that inherent knowledge that's with us every step of the way so that we're not losing focus on what has made us different, better, special in the marketplace.
0: And i would add from a development perspective i think it really boils down to two three things uh, our people uh, our nimbleness and in our innovation uh, when it comes to people as craig indicated we have a very strong team but we also have a lot of integration of different professionals where we have very strong relationships with a design team with an engineering team and many of the aspects of development that traditionally some developers may have to sub out to consultants, we're able to achieve much of that internally. So we have a very strong working relationship, and we understand what each different team needs in order to move forward on a project successfully. By having those teams internally too is that it helps us to be very nimble. We're able to respond to market conditions very quickly. We're able to respond to municipal concerns, going through development review process, and be able to look at things differently differently uh, and be able to get through processes perhaps uh, a little faster sometimes than some of our competitors and then innovation we're always striving for new ways of doing business to improve our processes to improve our designs to improve the tenant uh, the quality of the environment that we're bringing our tenants and we're also looking at it from the aspect of we're moving into established communities. How can we be a good neighbor? And if that requires us to be innovative with our product to incorporate certain amenities or certain commercial spaces on the ground floor to have a a neighborhood coffee shop or gathering place, or if it involves more intensive interaction with the community to figure out what their needs are and to make sure that we're able to balance our objectives with what makes their community unique, that's one of the things that helps us to grow so spectacularly. Uh, And currently, we're, we're active, as you said, from Vancouver Island, all the way to Ottawa. Uh, We have close to two dozen projects, either under construction or through entitlement, and we're averaging about uh, 2,000 to 2,500 doors a year under construction. So uh, we have seen significant growth. With that growth does come challenges, but with that growth also come a lot of opportunities as well.
1: And you know, like it's been two years that we are in this pandemic already, and most of your growth, well, maybe not most, but a lot of your growth happened within those two years, right? Um, Did you struggle to hire people to add talent during the the, the pandemic? Because a lot of companies did. So I just wonder uh, how was it for Ironclad?
2: So certainly we have hired a a number of key roles uh, throughout the pandemic. I would say hiring has gone through points that it's been more difficult and points that it's easier. Uh, I think overall it's become more difficult. I think employees, uh, if they're secure in the role they have, uh, it's harder to get them to, to change that role. Obviously, if they're in a business that has been impacted and they don't have that security, it's easier to attract them. Um, so it's really situational from that side of it. Uh, we've been able to hire, uh, a crew of very talented individuals through the pandemic. Uh, Senior, middle management and entry level. Uh, But it is challenging. I will tell you, uh, until the person actually arrives, uh, you are not certain that they're actually going to, to join your organization. I've seen more examples through the pandemic of people accepting roles and then backing out of them than I ever have. Uh, previously, But certainly hiring has is, is been a little bit more of a challenge, particularly in some hot areas, um, design, architecture, um, and construction. It, construction has boomed through the pandemic. It really hasn't been one of those areas that has slowed down. Uh, so with everyone working hard, um, that pool of people is, is
3: constrained. Has the constraints on hiring in the construction industry really changed your strategy at all? Or uh, what adjustments, I guess, have you guys had to make? I'm sure there's others feeling that pain out there as well.
2: Certainly at times there's schedule impacts. Um, I I will say that through the pandemic, uh, we have continued to maintain our schedules as, as much as possible. Supply chains have had impacts. You can have a crew that has a COVID outbreak, so that has impacts. Uh, certainly, we have increased significantly uh, to use another one of our core values, safety on, on our sites, making uh, or having the, the uh, construction crews remain in cohorts, having separate lunches, having separate breaks. So we have really tried to maintain a, a safe environment as possible. Um, Certainly getting people to move across the country. We have a number of subtrades that will work with us across the country. Uh, that has become a little bit more difficult. But I, I would say in general, it it's been more external impacts that have had effects on us, uh, i e the supply chain uh, and cost pressures uh, more so than than what we're in control of, which is you know the work that actually goes on on, on the sites.
3: Sure. Well, I appreciate that, especially coming from the uh, the Ottawa market, where um, we've seen a population uh, explosion, I would say, over the last few years, where we've kind of hit that with the Ottawa Gatineau area, that million-dollar uh, point of population come to uh, come to pass, which has made Ottawa obviously. A market that a lot of folks are looking to invest in, and it's a great place to live, and so drawing people here has uh, has never really been, I don't think, too much of a challenge for us. But being a government town and being in Ontario, we have a. We're always going to go to the. Uh, we're always going to go to the um, the political side of things. So I might as well throw it in there. While it's still relatively early in the conversation, we have a, a provincial election coming up here, and being in. Uh, the multifamily development side of things, and dealing with provincial governments and municipal governments all across the country. Um, what are some of the things that we should be listening to from our politicians as uh, Ontario gears up for our next election? Any thoughts?
2: Well, I'll let David talk to some of the specifics, but and and we obviously deal with provinces across Canada and municipalities across Canada. Uh, from a developer perspective, nothing can happen fast enough, of course. <laughs> uh, but it, it, I, the one thing I will say is we can build a building faster than municipalities can give us the entitlements that are are required for us to build. And when the the demand is so significant for uh, affordable housing, and that affordable housing is is a, a comparable to your million dollar uh, home, I I think we need to find ways to. Uh, see the processes uh, with, within uh, the governing bodies move at some speed. Uh, land is very expensive, and it, we've seen significant escalation over the last little while. Uh, we, we don't want to hold land undeveloped any longer than we need to. And we want to make sure that, that people have uh, great alternatives Uh, to uh, live in and we provide those. Uh, So if we can find ways to work together uh, to ensure that uh, affordable housing can be brought to the market as quickly and as expeditiously as possible and understanding the political process. We understand that that politicians have to be reelected. Uh, that people are concerned with the change in, in the composition of, of their neighborhoods. So we we are very intent on working with local governments, working with local communities to bring to market uh, what what is going to be best suited for their needs. But uh, it has to be done in a way that, that is a little bit more transparent and expeditious than what it is today. Um, David.
0: Yeah, we, we work obviously with municipal governments and, and provincial governments, at least the, the legislative framework, and, and we're aware when those political election cycles occur, uh, certainly um, on a municipal level, we've got election cycle in Manitoba and B.C. coming up, and of course, you've got uh, election coming up in Ontario. Uh, where you're seeing a lot of discussion about housing affordability and housing supply, and that's echoing much of the discussion that's also happening at British Columbia as well. You see a lot of media coverage about housing affordability, housing prices, the the housing crisis, uh, as people are calling it, and a lot of the media coverage and, and to be frank, uh, statements from provincial governments are really about the demand side, that there's uh, immigration impacting that, foreign ownership, crackdown of Airbnbs. Uh, a lot of discussion uh, is about that demand side. You're even seeing talk at the federal level of, of changing things so people could tap into tax credits for first-time buyers. Where the conversation actually needs to happen and where it's more critical is actually on the supply side. We could different levels of government can talk about the demand side uh, as much as they like, but unless we actually start dealing with the issues of, of, of prompt supply, uh, that's really not gonna solve the issue. Uh, and there's some reasons why. Canada has a much lower per capita rate of housing being supplied uh, than other, OEC, uh, other G7 countries. If you look at OECD numbers, it, it's interesting, We're one of the lowest per capita on on housing supply, but at the same time, we're one of the fastest depreciating housing markets of those G7 and G20 countries. And the reason why we are not building enough housing, Uh, even with increase in housing supply across the country, we're not meeting the latent demand, let alone Uh, catching up to our housing need. and We think really, in talking to other developers, feel the same way. There needs to be more attention to the supply side. Some of that is provincial. Some of that is municipal. And how do we move from more regressive policies and approval process and regulations to more progressive ones that enable more housing to occur? A lot of our regulations and policies out there are somewhat regressive when it comes to rental housing and multifamily. A lot of our processes, a lot of our zoning, a lot of our regulation is predominantly oriented towards single detached housing. And when you try to change that, uh, particularly in an infill circumstance, uh, things can get very interesting. Um, When it comes to legitimate neighborhood concerns about how their neighborhood uh, is going to change, we're very much in favor of having those open dialogues with uh, potential future neighbors because we're joining a community. But what's important is that decision makers, both at the municipal level and also provincial, but predominantly municipal, is understanding that unless we take a hard look at some of these issues and make more concerted effort to approve housing, our housing affordability crisis will only continue to get worse. Uh, There are a lot of legitimate reasons to look at projects in depth, height, traffic, parking all those are very legitimate but sometimes you can see through a public hearing process those being used as wedge issues or hammer issues to uh, essentially uh, quash development from occurring and this places decision makers particularly elected officials in a very difficult spot they need to meet their local electorate but by potentially denying housing from being approved they're really working against their municipality's own long-term interests. And, and, you know, to put my registered professional planners hat, we always talk about in the planning world the, quote-unquote, public interest. And really it's a challenge for decision-makers because it may be in the electoral interest to deny that housing project or cut it down from 12 storeys to six storeys. But from a long-term housing need and a long-term economic need for your community, it may not be in the public interest to do so. So, how do we move from more regressive policies that may prohibit or make it very hard for multifamily or rental to go in and move to a more progressive uh, regulatory environment that allows for those things to occur? There are some really good examples out there of progressive legislation and progressive municipalities. And I think more of that needs to be brought to the forefront as part of that conversation. Regardless of where you sit on this issue, I think all parties would agree our existing regulatory and approval framework for housing is not working effectively. We need to come up with new and innovative ideas on how to boost that housing supply.
1: Now, David and Craig, one thing that's fascinating is how you are doing this work basically in, you know, all over Canada. I come from a country i come from brazil where uh, regulations and law on development are pretty much standard and like homogeneous in all the, the states but here in canada sometimes you move from province to province and it almost feels like other country i know that when i moved from manitoba to ontario Um, things are very different from a development perspective, from regulatory perspective. Uh, A lot of laws are different, culture is different. So how is the the experience and which are the challenges, but also the rewards um, of developing in so many different provinces and municipalities? Well,
2: certainly geographic
1: diversification
2: uh, has its obvious benefits. Uh, for a company like ours, there, there are certain protections, making sure that we're we're maximizing the opportunities uh, and not creating oversupply in in any one particular area. For us to grow, we we have to be diversified in the in the geographies that we operate within. So that that's probably first and, and foremost. Uh, we have uh, set up an office, interestingly. Uh, in uh, Victoria, so that we now have a, a Western office. Uh, with the balance, the vast majority of our staff is is here in Winnipeg. And certainly, whether you're whether you're talking and David will get into this in more specifics, but whether you're you're talking about uh, our developments group, whether you're talking about uh, our design, uh, we have an engineering group. Obviously, our construction group. Uh, they do need to deal with the various regulations uh, as they move across the country. It is different. Uh, you You need to make sure that you're hiring uh, people or you're 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 ensuring that the people within your your organization have the expertise that's required in each one of those jurisdictions. Uh, you're engaging literally teams. Uh, to do these developments, uh, whether it's in uh, BC, Manitoba, or Ontario that have specific knowledge. You have to make sure that you have very strong relationships, that you're willing to listen, you're willing to understand the requirement, and adapt what you're doing. Uh, I I will say one of the things that has impressed me from the day I started at Ironclad, is our ability to adapt, uh, to ensure that you know we're not standing up saying that we're all knowledgeable. Our opinion is the only opinion that counts. That's not who we are. Uh, we're adaptable and flexible uh, to ensure that we're meeting the requirements of the areas that we're building in. Uh, so it gives us the diversification as a company, but it also teaches us that, that we need to make sure that we're going into these jurisdictions saying, what is it that we don't know? Who is it there that does know uh, and making sure that that we engage them uh, and bring them with us through the journey to, to build in that jurisdiction?
0: Yeah, certainly there's differences between different uh, provinces in terms of regulatory environment and even regions. Uh, one could say uh, on the prairies, it's perhaps less uh, layers of, of regulations as opposed to say Ontario or BC. And the key thing for a company such as ours is understanding what those regulatory differences are, how they impact our approvals process and our, our um, product itself, but also even just uh, how we license, how we operate, and how things might impact different timeframes and understanding how those different tools work in different jurisdictions and how there are comparisons.
3: David, I got carpal tunnel syndrome scrolling through your current projects, and my question is going to lead me to how do you pick a how do you pick a city, right? I mean, how does Ironclad come to the determination? And based on everything that you just said, um, and understanding the nuances between each municipality and and how they, you know, how "quote unquote" progressive they are. Um, well, uh, is it purely, uh, and I don't want you to get too much into your strategy that you don't want to divulge, but is it purely based on the opportunity that presents itself, either from projected population growth to the, the the returns you can get on on the opportunity that's been presented to you, or do you do that deep dive into those municipalities and say this is a group that that can we can work with that that can work with our team and then move forward? I'm curious because uh, how how you pick your, your 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 cities and your sites and what your strategy is, and if any of that plays into it.
0: I think it's a bit of both. We look at where there is strong economic and housing fundamentals both now and in the future. So what is the opportunity now and also further down the road? Because very much when we are targeting a market, it's not about the current site. It's about establishing a pipeline in that market. Uh, So we are looking for opportunities where the housing and economic fundamentals are strong. Uh, But we are also, when we're looking at potential markets, uh, what are what municipalities may have a combination of the strong economic and housing fundamentals and a more enabling or progressive environment so uh, we may look at a metropolitan area or a larger area on the housing fundamentals and then say within that there's these three or four municipalities which ones have clearer plans which ones have a clear vision which one have the economic and capital budgets that are aligned with them and uh, and present um, an element of managed risk that you as a developer can, in, uh, within reason, anticipate what the issues will be and forecast uh, a successful project. So it, it's it's a bit of both, to be honest. And I don't know if Craig wants to expand on that.
2: No, I, I think you, you covered that, David. I think the one other thing that we certainly look at is we don't wanna go in starting a, a new crew in a new city. Uh, takes time and investment. so we're looking also for a future within that community. We don't want to be a, a one build and then on to the next city. Uh, we want to make sure that there there are multiple opportunities within that uh, that city, uh, not necessarily that municipality within a city uh, that sees us staying there for a period of time. But it certainly is. It, it's the fundamentals. Uh, you, you want the return, the, the financial opportunity. But then it's also all the other tick boxes that that go with that. Uh, that you know whether it's the development process or or others.
0: And and land values in that market is increasingly playing a role. In some metropolitan areas, the land values are such that may not lend itself to our traditional four to six story multifamily build. Uh, for instance, Greater Toronto area, uh, a lot of the land is zoned there either for um, triplex or, or or stacked townhome or single family detached or tower. There's not a lot of land in between. So unfortunately, the few multifamily pieces that become available are more oriented and priced towards a tower format which may not uh, make economic sense for us and you have places like lower mainland of BC, where being right in the city of victoria property may not be that cost effective for us in our format but being in the surrounding communities does make sense uh, so that comes into play we're also seeing substantive Increases in land values across the country. Some markets more than others. In some, particularly in parts of BC, it is not the same market than it was 12 to 18 months
1: ago. So that that leads me to the next question, David. Um, did COVID make it harder to transact? Um, did it shorten the the supply of appropriate zoned uh, and multifamily land?
2: I don't know if COVID is the direct connection here I, and David can can fill in but we and to his last point we've seen a, a fairly dramatic change in pricing within the marketplace over the last 18 months uh, so increased prices shorter due diligence periods uh, land is always going to be a, a fixed supply within within the marketplace obviously travel to these jurisdictions is more difficult Uh, so it's all telephone transactions Uh, David and group have got out but they've only got out a couple times probably in the last two years Uh, so sort of getting out there and and seeing what's available has has been more difficult Uh, but I I don't know that it's a direct uh, correlation to the actual pandemic that has caused this I, I think it's there there probably has been uh, some migration and we hear it uh, outside of Toronto to other jurisdictions. We, we're hearing Toronto to Kelowna, Toronto to Victoria Island or Quebec. Uh, I, I think possibly there's a bit of uh, remote work—it's like okay, if I can remote work, where do I want to remote work from? Uh, and certainly, you're you're in Ontario. I've heard price escalations substantially in the Muskokas. As people say, okay, I don't need to live in the city. I can go uh, to Muskokas and and uh, work from there. I think that same type of uh, migration has been happening to other areas within Canada where. You know, and you take the highest level of population, uh, and you just move a, a little bit and it tightens supply up, uh, and and so we're we're certainly seeing prices migrate up, and I think there's a number of factors that are that are causing that. Yeah,
0: certainly, COVID has had an impact on various sectors of the economy. Uh, if anything, I'd say in the multifamily housing side, uh, it's actually uh, the tempo and demand has increased. Um, luckily, we are in a uh, an area that, regardless of what it, the Happens with the economy. People still have the need for some place to live, particularly if it is a higher end product such as our such as ours, which makes it more desirable. Uh, you have seen uh, increases in development across the country, and you're seeing a reflective uh, increase in land values and, and pricing the market. At the same time, you're having a compression. It really is kind of a seller's market if you have land in those areas. So. Uh, the prices are increasing, your periods of due diligence are closing or less, and at the same time, you're faced with increased delays and in backlogs and municipal approvals. So it does make for some uh, interesting analysis and decisions on where and when to proceed on sites. But overall, I'd say the housing fundamentals are very strong uh, and only increasing. And I agree with Craig, you, you are seeing more uh, desirability, remote work or in areas um, that were already growing, such as Kelowna or Vancouver Island, growing even more so. And even within provinces, you see some change as well. My, my sister-in-law lives in Ottawa. She's here in town. I was actually sharing a number of her neighbors our recent relocations from Toronto, where they can live in a... In a Uh, arguably a smaller metropolitan area where the housing prices proportionately or in comparison are are less than in Toronto.
2: Yeah, I think where you you can talk about COVID impacting uh, is probably more, there's been price escalation on commodities, whether that's lumber, which I think everyone would be very familiar with. Uh, Steel has gone up substantially, and then supply chain uh, and just durations uh, have gone up substantially. So there there are certainly pretty significant impacts from COVID, but it hasn't been in the area of the, the actual land supply. I think that's other fundamentals that are affecting them.
1: That leads me to... The last question, I want to propose a little exercise of futurology. Uh, Now, I know that's quite impossible to right now say where our economy is going and all that, but where do you think the multifamily development sector is going in 2022 and 2023? I think it's a very strong uh,
2: sector to be in. Uh, I think the demand for multifamily is going to continue to grow rapidly, uh, and I, I think it. It if you look from an investment standpoint, uh, it it should be the darling of the market. It is the darling of the market. Uh, I I don't see any of the fundamentals uh, changing in any negative way. Uh, I you you've certainly heard we just went through a, a federal election not that long ago, uh, and. Housing affordability is something that was coming off the tongues of all of our politicians. Uh, and I think multifamily is a key to their future success. If they, if they want to do something about it, uh, it's how can they help enable uh, companies like Ironclad to, to be bringing to market more of the products that we bring.
0: I would agree with Craig that uh, the overall housing fundamentals are quite strong across the country. I think it will be even more pronounced within uh, municipalities or metropolitan areas in terms of areas where growth and development is enabled and welcome and where there is a strong market. So I think you'll see even more strength in master plan communities and greenfield areas, particularly where there's a mixed use component, and also on infill and redevelopment sites along major public investments, such as rapid transit corridors, um, major redevelopment sites and things of that nature. Uh, I would only see strength in both of those areas. Uh, I'll be curious to see where multifamily goes in more, how shall we say, traditional detached residential suburbs, and in some of our uh, more mature communities where there isn't uh, a major redevelopment site or or public infrastructure investment?
3: Do I get to answer that as well, Carl? Sure. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I guess um, opportunity abounds. Um, It would be my uh, comment to that. Uh, Every um, landlord, client, investor, that we speak of uh, when they come to chat with our investment team here, yourself included, Carl. Um, the top two are industrial and multifamily, and it's, it's in interchangeable order. Those two are the, 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 the darlings right now, the, the bell of the ball, if you will. What I'd like to kind of keep my ear to the track, and, and I think a lot, we've talked about it a lot, is the markets that aren't always on the tip of everybody's tongue. So, what's the what is what does multifamily hold for Brockville or Kingston? And I look at those areas um, along the four hundred one, and and I and I I, I wonder. I, I, you take a look at the affordability for a single-family home in, in a market like Kingston right now, and it doubled in price in two years. To your point, David, earlier about groups coming from major metropolitan centers to be able to do the work from smaller municipalities. And I'm wondering if this is just an unbelievable opportunity to get the same type and levels of returns out of uh, that you would see in the major metropolitan areas or not. So I'd be curious as to what we see there.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think Warren, uh, markets like that are not off our radar screen. Hmm. I, certainly, you know, the, the larger markets are uh, kind of the bread and butter but uh, some of the, the markets that you just mentioned and other ones uh, are markets that that we have talked about.
3: Even and in I, Halifax in the, in the East Coast.
2: Yeah, there was, a, there was an article out uh, just last week, I think, speaking about Halifax, uh, saying that it was one of the fastest growing uh, markets that were out there. So absolutely, there, there are the opportunities abound uh, from uh, coast to coast in Canada and beyond. Yeah.
0: Certainly, I think there is a lot of uh, opportunity in what traditionally has been labeled second-tier municipalities or metropolitan areas. You, you see the similar effect occurring in the states where you have areas that are very concentrated in growth, but increasingly as those areas become more uh, cost challenged for homeowners, renters, or even developers um, that those second tier cities are becoming more and more popular to live in and in economic growth. Uh, An area like Kingston uh, that has some relatively stable uh, economic foundations in terms of a number of post-secondary institutions, uh, government, military, and others, uh, plus increased growth would suggest to me if the opportunity is right, that's a good market to be into. Part of the challenge can be how much how large is that opportunity and who else is also chasing it. I I don't want to go as far as to say timing the market, but certainly you want to make sure that you're moving forward and getting your product in the ground uh, before everyone else is, is in the ground or opening, particularly in smaller markets like that. That said, I do think there is a lot of opportunity in, in second tier cities, particularly on the outskirts of major metropolitan areas. If you look at some place like the GTA, the area to the southwest in terms of Kitchener Waterloo is booming. But if you look at a lot of the smaller communities around Kitchener Waterloo that are all within an hour, uh, there's a lot of gr- growth there as well. So you may go into london and do you know one or two or three projects over time and be able to to take that construction crew and move them to another municipality that is one of the fundamental uh things that that we keep in mind is it's not just about this site or this opportunity it's establishing a pipeline of sites where we can keep our crews busy on an ongoing basis and that's one of the things that come into play for us Certainly, a lot of these second-tier cities become more desirable from a developer's perspective. And just in terms of capital being tied up in costs, as these other major markets get more and more expensive, from a land perspective, how much of your land acquisition budget do you want to tie up in one site, in one major metropolitan area, whereas you might be able to get two or three Uh, sites in uh, either major areas that may not be as hot, such as a Winnipeg or in Ottawa, or in uh, rapidly growing areas like a Kelowna or someplace like a Kingston or or Kitchener-Waterloo.
1: Fantastic. Craig Gilpin, CEO of Ironclad, David Marsh, Director of Development, and Warren Wilkinson, Managing Director of Collier's Auto Office. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing so much about your rich experience in multifamily development across Canada. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for
0: listening to Collier's Talks podcast. To learn more about Collier's Canada, our experts, and our solutions, visit collierscanada.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.